The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leveraging Early GLP-1 RA Initiation to Reduce Risks and Improve Long-Term Outcomes in Patients with T2DM. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash WEU860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. Vinita Arroda from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. In today's presentation, I'll discuss why GLP-1 receptor agonists have risen in importance in the treatment hierarchy for type 2 diabetes, how the agents within the class differ from one another, and how earlier use of these agents may improve lasting improvements in patient outcomes. You'll then have the opportunity to apply the latest evidence to some patient cases through a series of challenge questions. So I have this talk in three segments. We'll start straight away with this first one, and that is thinking outside of the box, treating type 2 diabetes beyond glycemic control. Let's go ahead and start. We all know that type 2 diabetes is strongly associated with several macrovascular and microvascular complications, a few of them shown here. We know that retinopathy is common uh, with type 2 diabetes, and it's the most common microvascular complication of diabetes responsible for 2.6% of all cases of blindness worldwide. We also know that neuropathy is a common complication of type 2 diabetes, and this includes not only peripheral neuropathy, but also autonomic neuropathy. Nephropathy. We know that uh, type 2 diabetes is the leading cause of end-stage renal disease in the adult population worldwide, with a broad range of prevalence depending on the publications that you look at. So we know that if we're going to make a difference on these end-stage complications, we really need to target the management of type 2 diabetes. Stroke. Stroke is the second most frequent cause of death in patients with type 2 diabetes after coronary heart disease. Moving on, peripheral artery disease. This is sometimes the canary in the coal mine. It's the most common initial manifestation of cardiovascular disease in individuals with type 2 diabetes. And heart failure, also of growing importance, is the second most common initial manifestation of cardiovascular disease in type 2 diabetes. And finally, coronary heart disease. It is still the most frequently reported form of cardiovascular disease and most lethal one. So we know that if we are going to make a difference in patients' lives, you know, in the later years, we need to start early and make a difference in the earlier years. So I had the privilege of being part of the ADA and EASD international consensus on the management of uh, hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes. And a big theme that we came away with it was that we really need to treat the whole patient. So what we put together was a holistic, person-centered approach to type 2 diabetes management. The traditional treatment of type 2 diabetes has focused on glucose lowering. And what we've said here is that there's really four key quadrants to think about. And it's a continuous circle. Not one area is more important than the other. It's a continuum. You always have to keep assessing and iterating and making sure that you're taking care of the whole person with the common goals of care of preventing complications and optimizing quality of life. Let's talk through them. So first off, management of glycemia. An important new tenet that we put point blank was that to consider choosing approaches that provide the efficacy to achieve the goals that you have set with your patient. 
So the first step is what is the glycemic target for this patient? And then choosing therapies and approaches that provide the efficacy to meet those goals. Now in previous guidelines, that it was very uh, proscriptive. First step is metformin, next step is add-on second agent, then add-on third agent after the uh, person has um, you know, reached elevated levels. So it was a little bit of a treat-to-failure approach, meaning adding on agents after uh, one had escaped control. Here what we've said is, you know, think about your patient, think about the goals, think about the common goals, and choose the approaches that match those goals. So it's the person coming first always. And so one could consider metformin as first line, or you can consider combination therapy, or consider other agents that have high efficacy to achieve and maintain those goals. And we spelled out the hierarchy um, in the snippet below, showing that we actually have a range of uh, treatments to choose from. Not all medications are uh, created equally in terms of efficacy. So you've got your very high, uh, highly efficacious agents, um, dolaglutide at high dose, semaglutide, trisepatide, and then f- followed by insulin combination therapy within the very high category. And uh, within the high category, again, the GLP-1 receptor agonists that are not listed above. So the GLP-1 receptor agonists um, show predominantly within the guidelines. Next uh, quadrant is on weight management. So again, we know from studies even decades ago that weight management directly impacts glucose control. And there's a number of ways of addressing weight management. It can be through general lifestyle, intensive evidence-based structured weight management programs, medications for weight loss, even metabolic surgery if someone is a candidate. But in terms of choosing glucose-lowering therapies, consider a regimen with a very high to um, high dual glucose and weight efficacy. And here we've tiered it for you. And again, you can see that the GLP-1 receptor agonist class plays predominantly here in its ability to dually target glucose goals and weight goals. Next is cardiovascular risk factor management. We know that type 2 diabetes, as I shared in the introduction, is a leading cause of cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease has multiple different manifestations. And it's not just coronary heart disease, but it also includes stroke, also includes heart failure. So we really need to be thinking more holistically in our approach to the patients when we are screening and assessing for cardiovascular risk factors. A new consensus publication was published in Diabetes Care in 2022, lead author Busui and colleagues where they also focused on identifying persons at risk of heart failure. So in addition to your history and physical, uh, consider getting an EKG and biomarkers to assess risk for heart failure and to optimize the risk reduction. So an NT, ProBNP, BNP, or an HSC troponin. Also, blood pressure targets have lowered in the recent years. Ideally, a target of less than 130 over 80, as can be attained safely. Lipid lowering statins are key in terms of cardiovascular risk management for the person with type 2 diabetes. In terms of antithrombotic agents, they are indicated for secondary prevention, but there may be some populations, for example, those with elevated coronary artery calcium scores, where one might consider it in primary prevention. And again, smoking cessation for all. And then in the left upper quadrant, we've got cardiorenal protection, where for the purpose of organ protection, your choice of glucose-lowering medication matters. So as demonstrated by the cardiovascular outcome studies, 
in people with established or high risk of cardiovascular disease, the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT2 uh, inhibitors are your two organ protective classes. SGLT2 inhibitors with a predominant effect on reducing the risk of hospitalization for heart failure and reducing progression of kidney outcomes, and the GLP-1 receptor agonists having a strong effect in terms of reducing your overall um, major adverse cardiovascular events. So let's take a step back and look at the cardiometabolic actions of GLP-1. So GLP-1 receptor agonists at the core, at the basic level, we know that they enhance glucose sensing to enhance glucose-dependent insulin secretion at the level of the beta cell. They also enhance glucose-dependent glucagon suppression so that we don't have the abnormally elevated glucagon levels that contribute to hyperglycemia. We also know that centrally, they help suppress appetite, leading to decreased adiposity, decreased body weight, decreased inflammation, tying the diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular axis together. We also see a very consistent effect in terms of decreasing blood pressure. And at the gastrointestinal level, we know that they delay gastro gastric emptying um, and delay chylomicron secretion. And we also know that they have um, are associated with adverse events in clinical trials of nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and gallbladder disorders. Now, putting it all together, what we've seen in outcome study is a very clear and consistent picture of reducing major adverse cardiovascular events. So we see a reduction in non-fatal myocardial infarction, a reduction in cardiovascular death, a reduction in non-fatal stroke, resulting in improved cardiovascular outcomes when used in people with established or at risk of cardiovascular disease. What we're starting to see is that the picture behind GLP-1 and GLP-1 receptor agonists or base therapy is really rapidly expanding. I would say that this is probably your most well-studied class of anti-diabetic agents that we have. And so every, every few, few days, there's a new article in another direction. And I think the reason why is because what we see is that GLP-1 really addresses the full cardiometabolic picture. So any um, condition that there is that's associated or with cardiometabolism um, in any way, you see that there is probably a role of GLP-1. So here's your kind of comprehensive picture of showing all the different directions that GLP-1 and GLP-1-based therapies are being explored. Now, how do they compare with other agents that we've had? And here too, whereas I would say, you know, probably about five years ago, um, there would be massive debates of, you know, what should you treat with first or what should we, you treat with second? You know, are all drugs similar? Is it just, you know, grabbing from the dim sum cart or, you know, from, from the grab bag? And what we have seen from all the head-to-head -head studies that have been mandated by the regulatory agencies is that the GLP-1 receptor agonists really have a high efficacy and a comparatively high efficacy compared to other therapies. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are highlighted here in blue. We see higher efficacy in terms of change in A1C, higher efficacy in terms of change in body weight compared to other classes and compared to our traditional uh, initial agents that we um, used in decades past. You also see in terms of change in uh, systolic blood pressure, you see benefits here with both the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonist class. How do GLP-1 receptor agonists compare with other classes of medication for type 2 diabetes? 
Here we see a meta-analysis by she and colleagues spelling it all out. So just taking it step by step, um, shown in green are those with the beneficial effect. With the SGLT2 inhibitors, we see a reduction in all-cause death, reduction in cardiovascular death, reduction in non-fatal MI, a very strong uh, reduction in admission to hospitalization for heart failure, reduction in progression to end-stage kidney disease, improvement in health-related quality of life, and um, as well as low occurrence of severe hypoglycemia. With GLP-1 receptor agonists, we similarly see a reduction in all-cause death, reduction in cardiovascular death, reduction in non-fatal MI, and uniquely, a reduction in non-fatal stroke. We see in the meta-analyses a modest reduction for admission to hospitalization for heart failure, and this is an area being looked at as well. And we also see a reduction in the progression to end-stage kidney disease through the secondary analyses of the cardiovascular outcome studies. And we also see significant improvements in health-related quality of life. Now, where do our traditional therapies fall? As you can see, our traditional therapies have really been glucose-centric. So we do not see these extra glycemic uh, benefits or effects borne out in trials with our traditional glucose-lowering agents. So these are all neutral or gray. What about uh, potential risks? We see with our traditional agents, specifically sulfonylureas and insulin, we have increased risk of severe hypoglycemia. With the thiazolidine diones, we see increased risk of admission to hospitalization for heart failure. And with the, our cardioprotective classes, we see other potential side effects that we need to balance. So with the GLP-1 receptor agonists, we see increased risk of gastrointestinal events. And with SGLT2 inhibitors, we see increased risk of uh, genital, genital infections and the rare uh, potential increased risk of ketoacidosis and amputation. So the key takeaways for this first part is that the GLP-1 receptor agonists are increasingly prioritized for the management of type 2 diabetes and its comorbidities. And I would say on a personal level, I think it's really important for endocrinologists especially to be very familiar uh, with how quickly um, the evidence has evolved and how um, quickly the agents um, are, are being used, not just by endocrinologists, but also by other specialties, by the cardiologists, by the nephrologists. And it's really um, on our, it's our responsibility to make sure that we educate ourselves and each other. So other key takeaways from this first section is that we see that GLP-1 receptor agonists have beneficial effects on multiple comorbidities associated with type 2 diabetes, not just in lowering glucose, but also in body weight and also the other cardiometabolic manifestations. And if you think about who is especially likely to benefit from a GLP-1 receptor agonist, this would include those who would benefit from reductions in both body weight and A1C, those who have overweight and obesity, uh, those who have established ASCVD or are at high risk of ASCVD and especially those who are at risk of stroke, because that's where we saw a benefit with the GLP-1 receptor agonists, where we didn't see that with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And especially those who are far from meeting their glycemic goals, because we know that this is the um, most efficacious class of glucose-lowering uh, treatment that we have um, going on. So evaluating the options, a comparative look at the GLP-1 receptor agonists. 
So here, uh, what you have for you is really just the top level summation. Uh, and this is really taken from the different labels, uh, the FDA approved labels that we have available for the different GLP-1 receptor agonists. As you can see, all of the GLP-1 receptor agonists were approved and studied because they were um, indicated and meant to be intended for the treatment of type 2 diabetes as adjunct to diet and exercise to improving glycemic control. We also see a couple of studies that have resulted in their approval for use in patients aged 10 years or greater with type 2 diabetes. This is with exenatide uh, extended release and liraglutide. Now, so the cardiovascular outcome studies, which serendipitously have now given us a new indication for these traditional type 2 diabetes uh, treatments. So through the cardiovascular outcome studies, we have uh, approved indication for dulaglutide, liraglutide, and injectable semaglutide uh, to reduce the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events in adults with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. And based on the rewind study with dulaglutide, we also have an approved indication to reduce the risk of MACE in adults with type 2 diabetes and multiple cardiovascular risk factors. Also available to use a nice summation by Satara and colleagues really looking at the different cardiovascular outcome studies and the different GLP-1 receptor agonists. And I'll just take your attention to the whole, the um, overall reduction of three-point MACE, we see a 14% relative risk reduction, but you can see there's a little bit of um, a heterogeneity. It didn't reach statistical significance, but you can see that uh, there are differences within the class. Here you see the um, agents which had the positive um, outcomes and therefore resulting in the FDA-approved indication and wording were liraglutide, semaglutide from sustain 6, and dulaglutide from rewind. Now, in terms of evaluating the components of the composite, here we see the effect of GLP-1 receptor agonists on cardiovascular death. And what you see as an overall we have a 13% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular death, uh, with the positive outcome studies being from the LEADER study evaluating liraglutide and Pioneer 6 study evaluating oral semaglutide. What about stroke? Now, stroke is interesting uh, in that here at, as a class with the GLP-1 receptor agonist, we see a 17% relative risk reduction, and that we haven't seen with the SGLT2 inhibitor class. So this seems to be very consistent with the anti-atherosclerotic um, cardiovascular risk reduction potential of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. And what you see here is that the positive uh, a stroke outcome was seen in the rewind study looking at dulaglutide with um, all the other dots being uh, nearly on the correct side uh, besides the lipsy-senatide study. Uh, interestingly, in the rewind study, the authors pre-specified and looked at the type of stroke and found that the stroke benefit that was associated with dilaglutide was very specific to a reduction in ischemic stroke, again, consistent with the mechanism of action attributed to this class. Now, what about kidney outcome studies? Here we have results from the cardiovascular outcomes trials. And what you see on top is that we have a 21% reduction in broad composite kidney outcomes that are inclusive of macroalbuminuria. We see a 21% risk reduction on the top. And then in terms of worsening kidney function, we see that 14% reduction in worsening kidney function. 
Now, unlike the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, we don't yet have primary renal outcome data. Studies are underway in this area. Uh, and as you can see shown below are the definitions for both the composite kidney outcome and the worsening of kidney function, which in a meta-analysis is nice because it reconciles the uh, data done across the different studies. Now, what about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists by renal status? This is actually a relative strength of this class because you do have agents that are able to be used across the full spectrum of EGFR. But let's take a look. Some of the uh, wording in the labels might be reflective of the time period that they were studied, but also based on the evidence that was available. So on the left, um, if we look at those agents that are not indicated in patients with severe renal impairment, those are exenatide twice daily, lixisenatide, or exenatide once weekly. Well, what about agents that you should use in caution or if there's cautionary language in the labels uh, in patients with moderate renal impairment? We have that type of cautionary language with exenatide BID, um, as well as with lixisenatide, as well as with liraglutide when initiating or escalating um, in patients with degrees of renal impairment. Well, what about just a general caution as a whole? If your patient is reporting severe gastrointestinal adverse events, then that's where you should monitor renal function because that patient would be at risk of hypovolemia and uh, dehydration. And so that's where you want to be on top of it if someone is having severe GI adverse events related to the uh, medication. And in those patients, you would monitor the renal function uh, more closely. Other safety findings that have uh, been analyzed and uh, published on are shown here. Like, as I said, this is probably one of the most well-studied classes. So other uh, areas of interest in terms of safety, we have severe hypoglycemia, which is not increased with GLP-1 receptor agonists. We have new occurrence of uh, retinopathy. And as you can see, there's not a significant increase in the meta-analysis nor was there a pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer. Now you have to balance that and look at the individual studies to look at uh, which studies actually enrolled patients with a history of pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer. So that's the um, risk assessment of the uh, data available. Well, what's new in terms of established GLP-1 receptor agonists? I would say in the last few years, and we highlighted this in the ADA ESD consensus as well, there have been a a lot of interesting developments. First off, there's we now have our first oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, oral semaglutide that was developed and studied across the Pioneer Clinical Development Program, as shown here on the right, showing its high efficacy even when used early in type 2 diabetes and Pioneer 1 as monotherapy, or even when used um, in late as add-on to insulin, for example, in Pioneer 8, where you have preserved efficacy across the continuum a higher efficacy at the higher doses. Here was um, the indicated uh, doses are seven milligrams daily and 14 milligrams daily. And not shown here, uh, support of weight loss as well with uh, use of oral semaglutide. Other key updates are that higher dose once weekly injectable GLP-1 receptor agonists have been studied. So traditionally we're used to with dulaglutide 0.75 and 1.5 milligrams once a week. Well, the award 11 study studied three milligrams weekly and 4.5 milligrams weekly and showed incremental increased uh, glucose and weight lowering efficacy compared to the previous doses. 
Similarly, on the right-hand side, in the sustained forte clinical trial, two milligram dose, so a little bit higher uh, dose of semaglutide has been studied compared to the prior one milligram dose, again, showing incremental uh, benefits in glucose and weight efficacy. And I would say, I think one of the most important uh, updates that we've seen in the field is that we've gotten a much better understanding of the importance of bedside education and explanation when it comes to utilizing these agents. And this is featured um, in a uh, kind of an expert review by Wharton and colleagues, um, really talking about the need to educate and explain why these uh, patients are, why these, excuse me, why these medications are being used, what are the potential for the GI side effects that might occur, especially during the initiation period and during the escalation period, to educate that when these occur, they typically are short-lasting, they dissipate within the first few weeks, and things that the patients can do at their end to help minimize the GI effects. We call this anticipatory guidance. So embracing that these agents can reduce um, the appetite, they might reduce the total calories eaten, and that's been shown in studies as well. Um, and so things that patients can do at their end are to embrace and reduce the meal size, reduce the uh, calorie intake, uh, have mindfulness in terms of stopping eating once full and avoiding eating when not hungry, also avoiding high fat or spicy foods and moderating alcohol intake. Um, and then the other tricks that we have are uh, we don't have to escalate quickly to get to the maximum dose. We can escalate based on tolerability. So all of the um, medications have a starting uh, dose. You can start at the lowest dose and gradually dose escalate, um, making sure that the patients tolerate it uh, throughout. And you can consider a slower dose escalation for patients reporting challenges with GI symptoms during those first few weeks of treatment. Going on, we have the third E of um, effective management of GI side effects, and that is um, you know, what to do if there's still persistent GI effects. We have what's called dosing flexibility. You can pause the dose escalation. You can, again, explain the mechanism of action that one of the mechanisms of action is that these agents decrease appetite. And if one eats beyond that, it can result in a feeling of nausea. So to, again, listen to the satiety signals that are happening. Also, if someone has GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease, that can exacerbate the GI symptoms. So that could be considered, um, one could consider treatment of the GERD to help minimize some of the GI effects. Um, and now, if you pull the experts, different people say different things. I tend to try to advocate more lifestyle changes to counter and guide uh, through the potential GI effects, but some people we'll use just mitigating uh, medications just to temporize those uh, symptoms. For example, anti-nausea uh, medications. And then if the, if the GI effects are still persistent, one could consider switching to an alternative uh, agent if available or consider other treatments as, in, as appropriate. Well, now we also have terzepatide. Terzepatide is a dual GIP, GLP-1 receptor agonist. And the big question is, well, how does it compare in terms of weight and A1C efficacy in persons with type 2 diabetes? And what you see here on the left is the SURPASS-2 study um, comparing terzepatide at doses of 5, 10, and 15 milligrams once weekly to semaglutide at a dose of 1 milligram once weekly. So there's not a comparison of compared to the higher dose or 2 milligrams weekly. But here you see that you have high weight change uh, with the terzepatide 
um, compared to semaglutide, compared to dulaglutide, and um, higher weight change at the higher doses. You can also see the change in A1C below on the order of about 2% to 2.4% roughly with terzepatide. So we really have entered an era of higher A1C reductions and higher weight changes that are achievable with the therapeutics. And I think the key is to match the therapeutics appropriately with what the patient goals are through your shared decision-making process. So here is a closer look at the GLP-1 receptor agonist from the same meta-analysis compared to the GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist. So with trisepatide, the SURPASS cardiovascular outcomes trial is currently underway. The estimated completion date is October 2024. So we'll have updated numbers then once that is released. Um, though from the previous uh, SURPASS 4 study, things seem to be going in the right direction in terms of what we see from the smaller phase 3 trials. What we do see, again, we have definitive evidence from the GLP-1 receptor agonists that they are organ protective, reducing major adverse cardiovascular outcomes. And then the interesting thing is if you look at the side effects, the severe gastrointestinal events, we seem to be seeing higher severe gastrointestinal events with uh, trisepatide. So that's another important point to be familiar with and to be able to talk through and manage for any patient you're considering a GLP-1 receptor agonist or a dual GIP GLP-1 receptor agonist. So a reminder, with great power comes great responsibility. And that responsibility is at the bedside. It's not in the, you know, the pharmacy dispensation instructions. It's really something that we have to counsel patients through. So what about future directions? I mean, this has been an ex incredibly exciting space to be in. Um, since the first uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist was approved for type 2 diabetes in 2005, to then the first positive cardiovascular outcome study, the first um, approval for obesity, the first approval for use uh, to decrease cardiovascular risk reduction, and then the first oral GLP-1 receptor agonist in 2019, and now the first GLP and GIP coagonist that's approved that is really marking the progression to a new generation of what we're capable to do in terms of supporting patient-centered care goals. But what does the future hold? It's an ever-changing field. So uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists and base therapy are being looked at in HEFPEF, in peripheral arterial disease, in diabetic kidney disease, in NASH, and even in neurodegenerative disorders. Why? Because I think people have finally realized that um, endocrinology is where the patient care is at. It's understanding the whole patient that we're able to direct future therapies and approaches. So what about uh, non-alcoholic fatty uh, liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis? There's been a lot of interest in this area and there are uh, sub-analyses and studies showing that dulaglutide, exenatide, liraglutide, semaglutide, and terzepatide have favorable effects on various markers and measures. So for example, improvements in liver fat, improvements in uh, insulin resistance, improvement in the liver markers, and improvement in body mass. So one would think that we would see beneficial effects in this patient population. However, this year, um, the phase two trial looking at semaglutide in NASH itself did not show a significant improvement in fibrosis um, in, in patients with NASH and compensated cirrhosis. Why? This is an area of interest and 
my my personal theory is that uh, that's looking at disease at probably too late a stage. So I think where we have the greatest opportunity to make a difference is when people are have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease where supporting glucose improvement and weight loss can meaningfully change the uh, uh, trajectory of that course. But again, studies are needed. What about contraindications? Are there any absolute contraindications with the GLP-1 receptor agonist class? The only significant, you know, in the label written absolute contraindication is if someone has a personal history of medullary thyroid cancer or MEN2, multiple endocrine neoplasia 2. Now, as you know, these are extremely rare. And the reason why this contraindication is there is because there was a risk of C-cell cancer found in rat studies. So we don't yet know the relevance in human studies. And if we look at the rodent data versus the human data, this is you know one instance where it's nice that uh, humans are not all rats in this instance. So if you look at rodent thyroids, rodent thyroids have abundant C-cells. They have higher GLP-1 receptor expression on the C-cells and um, you do see an increase in calcitonin secretion in response to GLP-1 receptor agonists. Whereas with human thyroid, you have fewer C-cells, rare or absent GLP-1 receptor expression in the normal human C-cells, and no increase in calcitonin secretion. So it's something to be vigilant on and you know not to use if someone has a personal or predisposing history to medullary thyroid cancer. Now, as I shared before, this is probably one of your most well-studied class of medications. So how do you take all that safety data and bring it to the bedside? I'll talk you through that. We know that uh, there's an increased risk of gallbladder disease with uh, some of the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, whether that's related to the weight loss or through other more direct mechanisms, we don't know. But at the bedside, when I start these agents, it's important that we educate about signs and symptoms. So is someone having gallbladder um, symptoms such as uh, right upper quadrant pain, particularly after eating? So that would be a reason for them to pause and give you a call and uh, uh, work through that. Uh, with pancreatitis, this has been another area, active area of interest and study. And even though there have been cases reported, causality has never been established. But because of the cases and because of the kind of um, hesitations, these agents are not as well studied in patients with a history of pancreatitis. So you need to keep that in mind. Um, for your patients, you need to educate them on the signs and symptoms of pancreatitis and discontinue if pancreatitis is suspected. What about retinopathy? If you look at meta-analyses and uh, the evidence as a whole, there's no clear evidence that GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with an increased incidence of diabetic retinopathy. However, we saw in one trial that there was an increase in diabetic retinopathy complications. And if you look at the analyses, it's thought to be attributed to the rapid glucose lowering that was seen with these agents. And so that's very similar to what we've seen in our classic studies with insulin, where uh, rapid glucose lowering can uh, increase um, uh, complications related to diabetic retinopathy. So how do we translate that to the bedside? If you have someone who has known proliferative diabetic retinopathy or is under care for uh, treatments of their retinopathy, it's important that they continue to be monitored by the ophthalmologist. And even the ophthalmologist will say, don't withhold uh, therapy. Um, it's okay to use these, but, you know, make sure that they are up to their standards of care for their eye disease and, you know, maybe consider the rapidity of glucose lowering and 
um, how you would titrate your agent. Now, what about renal function? We know that gastrointestinal intolerability, when it occurs, can precipitate change in renal function because um, it, through dehydration and nausea. So it's important to monitor the renal function if there is significant intolerability leading to changes in volume status. So let's talk about a couple of cases. So here's Gabriel, a 58-year-old man. His BMI is 41. His A1C is 8.8%. Blood pressure is 134 over 80. Cholesterol 170, LDL of 94, HDL of 46, triglycerides of 151, EGFR looks pretty good at 92. His, he has a history of obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and type 2 diabetes for seven years. He's on metformin, 1,500 milligrams per day since diagnosis. Um, he's on hypertensive regimen, benazepril and hydrochlorothiazide, and a high-intensity statin, rosuvastatin at 40 milligrams per day. He also works as an IT manager for a professional sports team works 60 plus hours per week. He's divorced. He lives alone. He frequents the restaurants uh, for meals. And if we look at his previous visit eight months ago, his BMI was 41 back then as well. A1C was 8.6, again, elevated back then. Uh, blood pressure was you know, a little bit high at 141 over 84, and cholesterol was higher at 220. So let's talk about him. So he's on, he's currently on metformin, A1C is 8.8, .8, BMI is 41. Should his treatment be intensified? I would say yes. And I would say, let's take a step back and think about what his goals are. So goals are cardiovascular risk management. So blood pressure control, lipid control. Goals are to achieve and maintain glycemic control at his goal. So a, a, someone like him who's got decades of life ahead of him, we want to make sure that diabetes itself doesn't contribute to that increased risk. And the best way is by getting him to goal with an A1C of at least less than 7% and getting him there safely. Now, what about weight management? His BMI is 41, consistent with class 3 obesity. So we want to make sure that we're targeting uh, weight management as well. So would he be a candidate for treatment with the GLP-1 receptor agonist? Absolutely. In fact, if you look, the GLP-1 receptor agonist probably best unifies all of his different patient-centered goals of helping him uh, get to goal glycemic-wise, helping him reduce uh, body weight in a clinically relevant manner. We're seeing, again, not just 5% weight loss, but in some studies up to on average 15% weight loss. So I think we could capitalize on the effects of the GLP-1 receptor agonist, supplement that with lifestyle counseling, and help them achieve all of these goals in addition to reducing uh, cardiovascular risk. So what would you say is his most important treatment priority? And I would go back to the holistic figure. They're all important. We need to get people to glycemic control, weight control, and uh, cardiovascular risk reduction. So how would you modify his current treatment regimen to begin to meet these goals? I would start him on um, highly effective, efficacious GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, remember, even within your class of GLP-1 receptor agonists, there are different levels of efficacy. So your very high efficacy agents include dulaglutide at high dose, trisepatide, and semaglutide. So those would be your higher efficacy agents. And particularly with semaglutide and trisepatide, you also have um, high efficacy with weight. And um, in terms of cardiovascular risk, we have the positive outcomes so far with dulaglutide and semaglutide. 
So bringing this section to a close, we know that GLP-1 receptor agonists are highly effective agents for reducing glycemia and weight and may have a role in preventing and treating other comorbidities of type 2 diabetes. We also know that agents within the GLP-1 receptor agonist drug class have different indications. The three that have indications to uh, reduce uh, cardiovascular events in those with ASCVD are dulaglutide, liraglutide, and semaglutide. And there are a number of other indications and areas of active investigation. Next section, setting goals to optimize outcomes. So let's look at the value of initiating GLP-1 receptor agonists early in type 2 diabetes management. So here's a redraw of the ADA ESD consensus, and I want to talk you through some of the key principles in the update. What you see here is that we tried to make it very uh, actionable, and so we tried to mirror what happens at the bedside. So the two equal goals in terms of an action that we need to do for every patient is to think about how do we help reduce the risk of cardiorenal complications on the left and on the right, how do we help achieve and maintain glycemic and weight management goals? So simply put, the left side of the diagram deals with, I want to help you to protect your organs, the organ protection pathway, which focuses on GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. The right side of the pathway says, I want to help you to achieve your blood sugar and weight goals to reduce the risk of complications. And we know that the two are closely related. Um, if you haven't looked at this paper, I strongly recommend it. This is done by uh, Ildiko Lingve and colleagues published in The Lancet, where they really started talking about uh, matching up the goals with uh, the, the targets. So with adiposity, adip paucity-related diabetes, which affects probably about 90% of our patients with type 2 diabetes, obesity itself is a major morbidity. And so we can't just be glucose-centric. We, knew, we need to also think about weight-centric approaches. And with the higher magnitude of weight loss, particularly above 10 and 15%, you actually see more disease-modifying outcomes. And so approaches to consider intensive lifestyle therapy, weight loss uh, drugs, bariatric surgery, and those agents which have high efficacy with lowering body weight, particularly in this case, the GLP-1 receptor agonist class. Um, other secondary targets are your cardiometabolic risk factors. What about the patient with diabetes, type 2 diabetes with established cardiovascular disease? So it switches there. While we're still glucocentric all the time, there we want to also be cardiocentric. So use agents that have proven cardioprotection. And so this you'll choose from the GLP-1 receptor agonist class, the SGLT2 inhibitors, and the TZDs, specifically pioglitazone, and also focus on the whole cardiometabolic picture. What about your uh, population who only has isolated hyperglycemia without increased cardiovascular risk, without evidence of adiposity-related uh, diabetes? Here, your primary driver is beta cell dysfunction. And so it's not as prevalent and so here you can consider your more uh, traditional glucocentric approaches to the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Now, what about your person newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? All the epi and observational studies point to the same um, conclusion, and that is control matters, early control matters from the get-go. This is a study uh, by uh, Lightyear Pong and colleagues showing that in Hmong patients with newly diagnosed diabetes and 10 years of survival, having A1C levels above 
6.5% for that first year after diagnosis was associated with worse outcomes. And as you can see, being followed up, looking at the first two years, three years, four years, out to seven years, the higher the levels of glycemia, the higher the risk of microvascular, macrovascular complications and mortality. So the level of the control is something that comes out in all of these studies and something that we can help patients get to control early on to minimize these risks of complications. The authors concluded that immediate intensive treatment for newly diagnosed patients may be necessary to avoid irremediable long-term risk of diabetic complications and mortality. We also have very interesting evidence suggesting that you know, type 2 diabetes doesn't necessarily always have to be progressive. You know, when we went to medical school, that's what we were taught based on the UKPDS study that diabetes is chronically progressive. So here is data from the direct study showing the impact that high degree of weight loss could have on the natural course of type 2 diabetes. These are adult patients with type 2 diabetes who had their diabetes treatments removed who, um, who underwent an intensive lifestyle modification and were able to achieve a high degree of weight loss. And those who achieved a high degree of weight loss of 15 kilograms or more at one year, 86% achieved diabetes remission. When we look out at the data out to two years, again, amongst those who are able to maintain at least 15 kilograms of weight loss, there was 70% achieved diabetes remission. Now, as you, as you can see, Achieving that weight loss and maintaining the weight loss is a challenge, and it's not a challenge that everyone can do. But intriguingly, and this is exploratory, but they also did MRIs of the pancreas and found that there was increase in pancreatic volume in the responders who had remission off of medications and who were able to achieve and maintain the weight loss. There's increase in pancreatic volume, increase in maximal insulin secretion, and normalization of the ratty irregularity of the pancreatic borders. So the interpretation here is that for the first time, we see reversibility of the abnormal pancreas morphology followed by weight loss-induced remission. So this really challenges our traditional notion that diabetes has to be progressive and that there could be um, a very important role for supporting weight loss in our patients with type 2 diabetes. I had the opportunity to write a commentary with Professor Kamlesh Quinty to just reimagine what type 2 diabetes should look like from the get-go. And that is, you know, lifestyle intervention as a foundation and with reiteration of it throughout. But it's not either or. It's really all of it at the same time. So lifestyle intervention, early multifactorial risk factor control, and treat success getting patients to goal early and keeping them that goal, matching the therapies that best support their goals, recognizing that we have highly efficacious uh, agents that have been shown to be even you know, more durable than some agents, depend depending on the studies that you look at. And when appropriate as cardiovascular risk changes over time to incorporate, not just add, but to incorporate the SGLT2 inhibitors and or GLP-1 receptor agonists to help reduce the risk of both macro and microvascular complications. So it's not a treat to failure model, but a treat to success, treat early, utilize approaches uh, to match your patient's goals. But we do know that factors may affect adherence to and persistence with GLP-1 receptor agonists. And guess what? That's where we as the clinicians uh, and the education that we provide makes a difference. 
So there's a number of reasons uh, patients might discontinue. They might sense that it's um, not effective enough. They might uh, be unclear as to why they're experiencing these new GI symptoms. For some people, even you know, not being as hungry may be a new uh, symptom and feeling for them, and they could u- utilize or they could benefit from reassurance. There also might be different preferences. So people might be hesitant about using an injection. Well, now there's an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist. There might be other injection related concerns in terms of self-administering or, you know, overcoming some of the needle uh, fears that we've seen with insulin therapy. High cost is also um, a deterrent to access, injection site reactions, inadequate body reduction, inconvenience of the education schedule, trying to remember exactly when, and again, depending on the agent. But we also know that there are factors that can increase adherence and persistence, such as, you know, starting low and going slow, looking at the ease of use of the injection device, looking at weekly dosing instead of daily or twice daily dosing, and seeing early signs of success, whether that's in weight loss or achieving A1C level. So getting that sense of control is important. We also see that slower titration can help improve the tolerability of GLP-1 receptor agonists. So if someone is not tolerating the GLP-1 receptor agonists, you have dosing flexibility with the majority of the agents, and you have a practice day to go through that as well. So we know that GIAEs are common. They mainly occur after the initiation of treatment or after increasing the dose, and it's the peak plasma concentration that, that determines when the symptoms are most likely to occur. They typically, I tell patients, they typically dissipate within the first few weeks, so they know exactly, aha, the doctor told me I would feel this, and now I sense that it's going down. So let's go through Candice. Candice is a 37-year-old woman with a BMI of 30.7, a weight of 190 uh, pounds, A1C of 7.4%, blood pressure of 126 over 88, um, HDL of 38, triglycerides of 160, and LDL of 115. Her history is notable for polycystic ovary syndrome and type 2 diabetes, and she's not on medications currently. She is a sales associate at a high-end department store. She's married with one child who's 12 years old. She's a little uneasy about taking medications, and she just completed a three-month intensive lifestyle intervention where she successfully lost 12 pounds. So at the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes four months ago, her BMI was 32.6. Now it's come down. A1C was 7.9, and it's now appropriately come down. Blood pressure was 132 over 94, and total cholesterol was 195. So let's talk through uh, Candice. What goals would you recommend for her A1C and body weight? Realize she's young. She has decades ahead of her. This is the prime example as shown from the Latirapong study where I would want to get her to go at an A1C of less than 6.5 and keep her there throughout. Um, There are other risk modifiers to be aware of in her. So we know that she has a history of polycystic ovary syndrome. How does that affect her risk management? I would say here, again, if you look at the studies, BMI and body weight contribute to the cardiovascular risk in a woman with PCOS. So weight management would be an important goal uh, for for her, um, as well as looking at long-term cardiovascular risk and assessing her cardiovascular risk factors. So which medication would you recommend? Uh, again, this is where, you know, the guidance has evolved over time, whereas about five years ago, it would have been metformin first line, then add other therapies. 
Here we can take a step back and look at her more holistically. We can see that she has a need to reduce body weight. We have a need to get her to goal effectively. And we have um, potential cardiovascular risk factors that could be responsive to a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So you can consider the patient more holistically and think about the medications that are available to match. There's a really nice recent uh, review published by Guan and colleagues looking at PCOS as a risk enhancer for cardiovascular disease itself. Now, this is an area where there's some heterogeneity in the publications based on, you know, the heterogeneity of diagnosing women with PCOS, but also the studies that are out there. But the general consensus is that PCOS is associated with increase in cardiometabolic risk factors, whether it's obesity, dyslipidemia, insulin resistance, and elevated blood pressure. And there's studies showing increase in coronary artery calcium scores, increase in intimal medial thickness and carotid plaque. So this is a higher risk population and PCOS can be considered as a risk enhancer itself. So as endocrinologists, we have a prominent role in management of the cardiometabolic picture of women in PCOS not just managing um, the irregular ovulation or the hyperandrogenism, but really taking a step back in and looking at the full cardiometabolic picture. In terms of management of cardiovascular risk factors um, in women with PCOS, again, I refer you to this publication by Guan and colleagues, uh, focusing on healthy lifestyle for all women with PCOS, weight loss if they're overweight uh, through lifestyle modifications, and thinking about your different treatments. So, for women with obesity and res insulin resistance to consider metformin or GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, particularly if they have elevated cardiovascular risk. What about statin therapy? So statin therapy would be indicated if they have a high LDL of 190 or higher, or if they have an elevated ASCVD risk for, or if they have elevated non-zero coronary artery calcium score or other evidence such as carotid plaque. So how do you risk assess the woman with PCOS? Your traditional, cardio risk your traditional cardiovascular risk assessment still applies, but some people are recommending coronary artery calcium score, particularly if they are above the age of 40 or if the risk is uncertain or if it helps guide your primary prevention. So here are two studies looking at the different treatment approaches in women with obesity and PCOS. On the left side is a 32-week trial looking at liraglutide 3 milligrams per day compared to placebo. And you can see a significant reduction in weight, body mass index, as well as your metabolic components of glucose, HOMA-IR, triglycerides, as well as free androgen index. On the right side was a 24-week clinical trial looking not just at exenatide once weekly as a GLP-1 receptor agonist, but also comparing it to dapagliflozin as an SGLT2 inhibitor combination of the GLP-1 receptor agonist and SGLT2 inhibitor, so exenatide once weekly with dapagliflozin, combination of DAPA with metformin, or a pure weight-centered approach with venteramine-topiramate combination. And what you see here is you have high degree of weight loss achieved with the combination therapies of the GLP-1 with SGLT2 inhibitor or with the fenteramine-topiramate, um, and a high reduction in the body mass index, but with the other metabolic parameters really primarily moved and impacted by your metabolic therapies. So again, in thinking about PCOS and thinking about the whole picture, we really want to think about the cardiometabolic risk and approaches there. 
We also know that none of this is possible without a true shared decision-making conversation. And this is really, I would say, the fun part of care is sharing the evidence, translating the evidence to the bedside with the with the person living with obesity, type 2 diabetes, PCOS, et cetera, right in front of us. The Mayo Clinic has shared decision modules that are free and available to use online. And as you can see, they map out the different categories and you can click on the different medications and the different categories to really talk through and figure out which of the tools would best support the patient-centered goals. So to summarize, what we see consistently is that the earlier to goal and the ability to stay at goal, including an A1C of less than 6.5%, the fewer the microvascular and macrovascular complications develop. We also know that weight loss itself is an important mediator and facilitator of diabetes control. And in the recent consensus has been elevated as a co-primary, uh, literally in terms of uh, goal setting and management. And uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists can be used as first-line therapy. The, the slate is open and it really depends on what the patient-centered goals are. And here's where GLP-1 receptor agonists can be considered for the potential of earlier control of glycemia, weight, as well as cardiovascular risk protection. Key takeaways. So we know that GLP-1 receptor agonists are an increasingly important tool in our toolbox and that there are important differences in indications between the different agents. It's up to us as endocrinologists to know this, to educate ourselves, to educate our patients, to educate our colleagues. And that earlier glycemic control reduces the risk of microvascular and macrovascular complications. And that higher magnitudes of weight loss are associated with better type 2 diabetes control. And patients are more likely to dare to GLP-1 receptor agonists if they are provided with anticipatory guidance about how they might feel after initiating them. So in terms of future directions, there are a lot of um, trials going on or in the pipeline looking at efficacy and safety of GLP-1 receptor agonists in other cardiometabolic conditions, such as in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, diabetic kidney disease, and heart failure. And there's also trials underway looking at even higher doses of GLP-1 receptor agonists, as well as dual and triple incretin therapies that really will give us um, a, a sneak peek of what is uh, attainable with, um, with these agents that are targeting the underlying biology. So with that, I will say thank you, and this ends our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity informative. Please check out the practice aids as they may be useful to you. Thank you so much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WEU860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.